Chapter Thirteen of Outwitting the Hun: My Escape from a German Prison Camp by Pat O'Brien. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: Five Days in an Empty House. The five days I spent in that house seemed to me like five years. During all that time, I had very little to eat, less, in fact, than I had been getting in the fields. I did not feel it so much, perhaps, because of the fact that I was no longer exposed to the other privations which had helped to make my condition so wretched. I now had a good place to sleep, at any rate, and I did not awake every half hour or so, as I had been accustomed to do in the fields and woods, and, of course, my hunger was not aggravated by the physical exertions which had been necessary before. Nevertheless, perhaps because I had more time now to think of the hunger pains which were gnawing at me all the time, I don't believe I was ever so miserable as I was at that period of my adventure. I felt so mean toward the world I would have committed murder, I think, with very little provocation. German soldiers were passing the house at all hours of the day. I watched them hour after hour from the keyhole of the door. To have shown myself at the windows was out of the question, because the house in which I was concealed was supposed to be untenanted. Because of the fact that I was unable to speak either Flemish or German, I could not go out and buy food, although I still had the money with which to do it. That was one of the things that galled me, the thought that I had the wherewithal in my jeans to buy all the food I needed, and yet no way of getting it without endangering my liberty and life. At night, however, after it was dark, I would steal quietly out of the house to see what I could pick up in the way of food. By that time, of course, the stores were closed, but I scoured the streets, the alleys, and the byways for scraps of food, and occasionally got up courage enough to appeal to Belgian peasants whom I met on the streets, and in that way I managed to keep body and soul together. It was quite apparent to me, however, that I was worse off in the city than I had been in the fields, and I decided to get out of that house just as soon as I knew definitely that Heiliger had made up his mind to do nothing further for me. When I was not at the keyhole of the door, I spent most of my day on the top floor in a room which looked out on the street. By keeping well away from the window, I could see much of what was going on without being seen myself. In my restlessness, I used to walk back and forth in that room, and I kept it up so constantly that I believe I must have worn a path on the floor. It was nine steps from one wall to the other, and as I had little else to amuse me, I figured out one day, after I had been pacing up and down for several hours, just how much distance I would have covered on my way to Holland if my footsteps had been taking me in that direction instead of just up and down that old room. I was very much surprised that in three hours I crossed the room no less than five thousand times and the distance covered was between nine and ten miles. It was not very gratifying to realize that after walking all that distance I wasn't a step nearer my goal than when I started, but I had to do something while waiting for Heiliger to help me, and pacing up and down was a natural outlet for my restlessness. While looking out of that top-floor window one day, I noticed a cat on a window-ledge of the house across the street. 
I had a piece of a broken mirror which I had picked up in the house, and I used to amuse myself for an hour at a time shining it in the cat's eyes across the street. At first the animal was annoyed by the reflection and would move away, only to come back a few moments later. By and by, however, it seemed to get used to the glare and wouldn't budge, no matter how strong the sunlight was. Playing with a cat in this way was the means of my getting food a day or two later, at a time when I was so famished that I was ready to do almost anything to appease my hunger. It was about seven o'clock in the evening. I was expecting Heiliger at eight, but I hadn't the slightest hope that he would bring me food as he had told me that he wouldn't take the risk of having food in his possession when calling on me. I was standing at the window in such a way that I could see what was going on in the street without being observed by those who passed by. When I noticed my friend the cat coming down the steps of the opposite house with something in his mouth, without considering the risks I ran, I opened the front door, ran down the steps and across the street, and pounced on the cat before it could get away with its supper, for that, as I had imagined, was what I had seen in its mouth. It turned out to be a piece of stewed rabbit, which I confiscated eagerly and took back with me to the house. Perhaps I felt a little sorry for the cat, but I certainly had no other qualms about eating the animal's dinner. I was much too hungry to dwell upon niceties, and a piece of stewed rabbit was certainly too good for a cat to eat when a man was starving. I ate it, and enjoyed it, and the incident suggested to me a way in which I might possibly obtain food again when all other avenues failed. From my place of concealment I frequently saw huge carts being pushed through the streets, gathering potato peelings, refuse of cabbage, and similar food remnants which, in America, are considered garbage and destroyed. In Belgium they were using this garbage to make their bread out of, and while the idea may sound revolting to us, the fact is that the Germans have brought these things down to such a science that the bread they make in this way is really very good to eat. I know it would have been like cake to me when I was in need of food. Indeed, I would have eaten the garbage direct, let alone the bread. Although, as I have said, I suffered greatly from hunger while occupying this house, there were one or two things I observed through the keyhole or from the windows which made me laugh, and some of the incidents that occurred during my voluntary imprisonment were really rather funny. From the keyhole I could see, for instance, a shop window on the other side of the street, several houses down the block. All day long German soldiers would be passing in front of the house, and I noticed that practically every one of them would stop in front of this store window and look in. Occasionally a soldier on duty bent would hurry past, but I think nine out of ten of them were sufficiently interested to spend at least a minute, and some of them three or four minutes, gazing at whatever was being exhibited in that window, although I noticed that it failed to attract the Belgians. I have a considerable streak of curiosity in me, and I couldn't help wondering what it could be in that window, which almost without exception seemed to interest German soldiers, but failed to hold the Belgians, and after conjuring my brain for a while on the problem, I came to the conclusion that the shop must have been a bookshop, and the window contained German magazines, which naturally enough would be of the greatest interest to the Germans 
but none to the belgians at any rate i resolved that as soon as night came i would go out and investigate the window when i got the answer i laughed so loud that i was afraid for the moment that i must have attracted the attention of the neighbors but i couldn't help it the window was filled with huge quantities of sausage the store was a butcher shop and one of the principal things they sold apparently was sausage the display they made although it consisted merely of quantities of sausage piled in the windows certainly had plenty of pulling power it pulled nine germans out of ten out of their course and indirectly it pulled me right across the street the idea of those germans being so interested in that window display as to stand in front of the window for two three or four minutes at a time however certainly seemed funny to me and when i got back to the house i sat at the keyhole again and found just as much interest as before in watching the germans stop in their tracks when they reached the window even though i was now aware what the attraction was one of my chief occupations during those days was catching flies i would catch a fly put him in a spider's web there were plenty of them in the old house and sit down to wait for the spider to come and get him but always I pictured myself in the same predicament, and rescued the fly, just as the spider was about to grab him. Several times, when things were dull, I was tempted to see the tragedy through, but perhaps the same providence that guided me safely through all perils was guarding too the destiny of those flies, for I always weakened, and the flies never did suffer from my lust for amusement. The house was well supplied with books in fact one of the choicest libraries i think i ever saw but they were all written either in flemish or in french i could read no flemish and very little french i might have made a little headway with the latter but the books all seemed too deep for me and i gave it up there was one thing though that i did read and re-read from beginning to end that was a new york herald which must have arrived just about the time war was declared Several things in there interested me, and particularly the baseball scores, which I studied with as much care as a real fan possibly would on an up-to-date score. I couldn't refrain from laughing when I came to an account of Zimmerman, of the Cubs, being benched for some spat with the umpire, and it afforded me just as much interest three years after it had happened, perhaps more, than some current item of worldwide interest had at the time. I rummaged the house many times from cellar to garret in my search for something to eat, but the harvest of three years of war had made any success along that line impossible. I was like the man out on the ocean in a boat and thirsty, with water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. I was tempted while in this city to go to church one Sunday but my better judgment told me it would be a useless risk. Of course, someone would surely say something to me, and I didn't know how many Germans would be there, or what might happen, so I gave up that idea. During all the time I was concealed in this house, I saw but one automobile, and that was a German staff officer's. That same afternoon I had one of the frights of my young life. I had been gazing out of the keyhole as usual, when I heard coming down the street the measured tread of German soldiers. It didn't sound like very many, 
but there was no doubt in my mind that German soldiers were marching down the street. I went upstairs and peeked through the window, and sure enough a squad of German infantry was coming down the street, accompanying a military truck. I hadn't the slightest idea that they were coming after me, but still the possibilities of the situation gave me more or less alarm, and I considered how I could make my escape if, by any chance, I was the man they were after. The idea of hiding in the wine cellar appealed to me as the most practical. There must have been plenty of places among the wine kegs and cases where a man could conceal himself but as a matter of fact I did not believe that any such contingency would arise. The marching soldiers came nearer. I could hear them at the next house. In a moment I could see them pass the keyhole through which I was looking. HALT! At the word of command, shouted by a junior officer, the squad came to attention right in front of the house. I waited no longer. Running down the stairs, I flew down into the wine cellar, and although it was almost pitch dark, the only light coming from a grating which led to the back yard, I soon found a satisfactory hiding place in the extreme rear of the cellar. I had the presence of mind to leave the door of the wine cellar ajar, figuring that if the soldiers found a closed door they would be more apt to search for a fugitive behind it than if the door were open. My decision to get away from the front door had been made and carried out none too soon, for I had only just located myself between two big wine-cases when I heard the tramp of soldiers' feet marching up the front steps, a crash at the front door, a few hasty words of command which I did not understand, and then the noise of scurrying feet from room to room and such a banging and hammering and smashing and crashing that I could not make out what was going on. If Heiliger had revealed my hiding-place to the Huns, as I was now confident he had, I felt that there was little prospect of their overlooking me. They would search the house from top to bottom, and, if necessary, raise it to the ground before they would give up the search. To escape from the house through the back yard, through the iron grating which I had no doubt I could force, seemed to be a logical thing to do, but the chances were that the Huns had thrown a cordon around the entire block before the squad was sent to the house. The Germans do these things in an efficient manner always. They take nothing for granted. My one chance seemed to be to stand pat in the hope that the officer in charge might possibly come to the conclusion that he had arrived at the house too late, that the bird had flown. My position in that wine cellar was anything but a comfortable one. Rats and mice were scurrying across the floor, and the smashing and crashing going on overhead was anything but promising. Evidently those soldiers imagined that I might be hiding in the walls for it sounded as though they were tearing off the wainscoting, the picture-moulding, and, in fact, everything that they could tear or pull apart. Before very long they would finish their search upstairs and would come down to the basement. What they would do when they discovered the wine I had no idea. Perhaps they would let themselves loose on it and give me my chance. With a bottle of wine in each hand I figured I could put up a good fight in the dark, 
especially as I was becoming more and more accustomed to it, and could begin to distinguish things here and there, whereas they would be as blind as bats in the sun when they entered the pitchy darkness of the cellar. Perhaps it was twenty minutes before I heard what sounded like my death knell to me. The soldiers were coming down the cellar steps. I clutched a wine bottle in each hand and waited with bated breath. Tramp, tramp, tramp. In a moment they would be in the cellar proper. I could almost hear my heart beating. The mice scurried across the floor by the scores, frightened, no doubt, by the vibration and noise made by the descending soldiers. Some of the creatures ran across me where I stood between the two wine-cases, but I was too much interested in bigger game to pay attention to mice. Tramp! Tramp! Halt! Again an order was given in German, and although I did not understand it, I am willing to bless every word of it, because it resulted in the soldiers turning right about face, marching up the stairs again, through the hall, and out of the front door, and away. I could hardly believe my ears. It seemed almost too good to be true that they could have given up the search, just as they were about to come on their quarry. But unless my ears deceived me, that was what they had done. The possibility that the whole thing might be a German ruse did not escape me, and I remained in the cellar for nearly an hour after they had apparently departed before I ventured to move, listening intently in the meanwhile for the slightest sound which would reveal the presence of a sentry upstairs. Not hearing a sound, I began to feel that they had indeed given up the hunt, for I did not believe that a German officer would be so considerate of his men as to try to trap me rather than carry the cellar by force if they had the slightest idea that I was there. I took off my shoes and crept softly and slowly to the cellar steps, and then step by step, placing my weight down gradually so as to prevent the steps from creaking, I climbed to the top. The sight that met my eyes as I glanced into the kitchen told me the whole story. The water faucets had been ripped from the sinks, the water pipes having been torn from the walls. Everything of brass or copper had been torn off, and gas fixtures, cooking utensils, and everything else which contain even only a small proportion of the metals the Germans so badly needed had been taken from the kitchen. I walked upstairs now with more confidence, feeling tolerably assured that the soldiers hadn't been after me at all, but had been merely collecting metals and other materials which they expected an elaborate dwelling-house like the one in which I was concealed to yield. Later I heard that the Germans have taken practically every ounce of brass, copper, and wool they could lay their hands on in Belgium. Even the brass out of pianos had been ruthlessly removed. The serious damage done to valuable property by the removal of only an insignificant proportion of metal never being taken into consideration. I learned, too, that all dogs over fourteen inches high had been seized by the Germans. This furnished lots of speculation among the Belgians as to what use the Germans were putting the animals to, the general impression apparently being that they were being used for food. This, however, seemed much less likely to me than that they were being employed as dispatch dogs in the trenches the same as we use them on our side of the line. 
They might possibly kill the dogs and use their skins for leather and their carcasses for tallow, but I feel quite sure that the Huns are by no means so short of food that they have to eat dogs yet awhile. Indeed, I want to repeat here what I have mentioned before. If anyone has the idea that this war can be won by starving the Huns, he hasn't the slightest idea how well provided the Germans are in that respect. They have considered their food needs in connection with their resources for several years to come, and they have gone at it in such a methodical, systematic way, taking into consideration every possible contingency, that provided there is not an absolute crop failure, there isn't the slightest doubt in my mind that they can last for years, and that the worst of it is that they are quite cocksure about it. It is true that the German soldiers want peace. As I watched them through the keyhole in the door, I thought how unfavorably they compared with our men. They marched along the street without laughter, without joking, without singing. It was quite apparent that the war is telling on them. I don't believe I saw a single German soldier who didn't look as if he had lost his best friend, and he probably had. At the same time, there is a big difference, certainly a difference of several years, between wishing the war was over and giving up, and I don't believe the German rank and file, any more than their leaders, have the slightest idea at this time of giving up at all. But to return to my experiences while concealed in the house. After the visit of the soldiers, which left the house in a wretched condition, I decided that I would continue my journey toward the frontier, particularly as I had got all I could out of Heiliger, or rather he had got all he was going to get out of me. During my concealment in the house, I made various sorties into the city at night, and I was beginning to feel more comfortable even when German soldiers were about. Through the keyhole I had studied very closely the gait of the Belgians, the slovenly droop that characterized most of them, and their general appearance, and I felt that in my own dirty and unshaven condition I must have looked as much like the average poor Belgian as a man could. The only thing that was against me was my height. I was several inches taller than even the tallest Belgians. I had often thought that red hair would have gone well with my name, but now, of course, I was mighty glad that I was not so endowed, for red-haired Belgians are about as rare as German charity. There are many, no doubt, who will wonder why I did not get more help than I did at this time. It is easily answered. When a man is in hourly fear of his life, and the country is full of spies, as Belgium certainly was, he is not going to help just anyone that comes along seeking aid. One of the Germans' most successful ways of trapping the Belgians has been to pose as an English or French prisoner who has escaped, appeal to them for aid, implicate as many as possible, and then turn the whole German police force loose on them. As I look back now on those days, I think it remarkable that I received as much help as I did, but when people are starving under the conditions now forced upon those unfortunate people, it is a great temptation to surrender these escaped prisoners to German authorities and receive the handsome rewards offered for them, or for alien spies, as I was classed at that time. The passport which I had described me as a Spanish sailor. 
but I was very dubious about its value. If I could have spoken Spanish fluently, it might have been worth something to me, but the few words I knew of the language would not have carried me very far if I had been confronted with a Spanish interpreter. I decided to use the passport only as a last resort, preferring to act the part of a deaf and dumb Belgian peasant as far as it would carry me. Before I finally left the house, I had a remarkable experience which I shall remember as long as I live. End of chapter 13